You're listening to the Light for Living podcast, featuring the sermons of Emmanuel Baptist Church in El Dorado, Arkansas, where Dr. Clark Whitney serves as senior pastor. Join us for verse-by-verse messages through the life-changing Word of God. Along the way, we'll also feature devotional thoughts, Bible studies, and interviews, all designed to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have a seat, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It's good to see you today as we begin a new series entitled Summer Road Trip. And the theme of the series will make a little more sense as we go along. Uh, But summer is a good time to take a family road trip. I asked a question this week and I wanted to see what were some of your favorite road trips that you've ever been on. And some of you described some pretty epic road trips. I remember when I was a boy, every summer, my family would travel to Glorieta, New Mexico, a little higher than Santa Fe, and it was a beautiful uh, Baptist campground uh, conference center there, but we would make a road trip out of it, and we would stop at these dinky places uh, that had a pool, these little motels, and stay there, and we went to all the tourist traps. I remember going to Carlsbad Caverns, one of the largest caverns in the world, going down into that. I remember going to Roswell, New Mexico, and going to the Alien Museum. That was pretty scary as a kid. And uh, we would make our way up there. We would take our time getting there. And what memories we made. The the most, uh, just the the one that seared into my mind was when we had a 2006 Jeep Commander. It was pretty cool back in the day. And uh, in the middle of the New Mexican desert, on the way there, the AC went out. So we had to have the whole week at Glorietta and then all the way home without any AC. Uh, but road trips are, are special. Uh, as we go on journeys and we find out new places and some places we go to that are familiar, like Branson I went to a week ago, hadn't been there in a while, noticed things had changed a little bit. Uh, road trips bond us together with the people that, that we go on them with. Uh, road trips are a lot of fun. We're going to be looking at different road trips in the Bible. For example... There are several road trips in the Bible. Uh, The book of Exodus, God's people spent 40 years in the wilderness. That would have been the longest road trip of all time. Uh, Saul was on the road to Damascus on a road trip when he encountered Jesus. Mary and Joseph took a road trip to Bethlehem. And on and on we could go, but we're going to be looking at some different road trips in the Bible and along the way learning some principles for our lives. The title of the message today is called, What to Do when you don't know what to do. If you've ever had a situation in life where you feel inadequate, out of control, not knowing what to do next, this text from the Word of God will encourage you today. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we're given the history of of the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah. And it was composed of two tribes because this was a divided kingdom. Remember, God's people, there were 12 tribes. Ten made up the north kingdom. And they were all bad kings that ruled over that kingdom. But in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, there were some good kings and there were some bad kings. This king that we look at today was named Jehoshaphat. And he ruled in about 872 B.C., around that time period. And Jehoshaphat was mostly a good king. And we're given a, a picture today of a time that God's people, the one that he had called out of Egypt by name, had encountered a situation where they had no clue what to do. 
And we're going to look at that today, and we're going to ask uh, and look at their example and ask the question, what should we do when we don't know what to do? We'll begin reading today in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 30. If you got it, say got it. The Word of God says, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, together with some of the Meunites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom has come to fight against you, and they are already in Hazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. He said, Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in the land and have built a sanctuary in it for your name and said, If disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you, for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you, because of our distress, and you will hear, hear and deliver. Now here the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their dependents, their wives, and their children. In the middle of the congregation, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite from Asaph's descendants. And he said, Listen carefully, all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, tomorrow, go down against them. You will see them coming up the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel. You do not have to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Then Jehoshaphat nailed down low with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. Then the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting loudly. In the morning they got early and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. 
Then he consulted with the people and appointed some to sing for the Lord and some to praise the splendor of his holiness. When they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for his faithful love endures forever. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir, who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy each other. When Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked for the large army. But there were only corpses lying on the ground. Nobody had escaped. Then Jehoshaphat and his people went to gather the plunder. They found among them an abundance of goods on the bodies and valuable items. So they stripped them until no one could carry it anymore. They were gathering the plunder for three days because there was so much. They assembled in the valley of Barakah on the fourth day, and there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, that place is still called the valley of Barakah today. Then all the men of Judah and Jerusalem turned back with Jehoshaphat, their leader, returning joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord enabled them to rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem to the Lord's temple with harps and lyres and trumpets. And the terror of God was upon all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then Jehoshaphat's kingdom was quiet, for his God gave him rest on every side. Lord, our prayer is simple this morning. Pray that you would open up our eyes to see the truth of your word. Thank you for your perfect word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We humble ourselves. God, we ask you to move in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're on a road trip. I'm going to take a little detour, but I'll get to where I'm going. I've had a fascination since I was a kid with household appliances. And uh, uh, being a husband, I try to do my part around the house, okay? And I, I always am looking for a way to work smarter instead of working harder. And so about the time my daughter Elliot was born, last August, I decided that the best thing for our family to do would be to invest in a wet vacuum, okay? It's one that mops and vacuums at the same time. And this was right after we had gotten home from the hospital. I figured that I needed to help clean a little bit more than I had been. And I figured that the best way to do it was to kill two birds with one stone. And so I researched all these different types. We have mostly hardwood floors uh, that would clean it and uh, do a good job, and I could do it rather quickly. So I ended up investing in this beautiful Tenneco Floor One S3. That may not mean anything to you, but it's pretty much the number one vacuum in the wet vac space. And I did all my research and I got a great deal. I ordered it, it came in, and I read the manual. And so I, I found out how to operate this wonderful vacuum. I, I can attest it's well worth the investment. You see on the top there is a clean water tank. That's where you put, you can put hot water, you can put cold water, I usually put hot. And then you put a little bit of cleaning solution and then what it does is it, it forces the water down. There's a brush on the bottom that rolls across the floor, picking up different debris, also cleaning your floor with just enough water and sucking it back up in to that tank on the bottom. The tank on the bottom is the dirty water tank. It's pretty ingenious because a lot of times when you mop, you end up mopping your floor with dirty water. Maybe I need to go sell vacuums. But I, I was just so impressed and uh, I got it and I read the manual and it did not come with the manufacturer's cleaning solution. 
So what I did was is I found some antibacterial solution that I had to put it in the tank. And it worked wonderfully. In fact, I, it worked a little bit too well because I would see something on the floor, get the vacuum, and, and vacuum it up, but then I would be like a squirrel that would see something else on the floor. And all over and over the house I would go making a ruckus until finally my wife told me to stop vacuuming. I never thought a wife could tell a husband that, but she did. And so we've used this for, for our kids, you know, around the table, things get on the floor, and it really comes in handy. I highly recommend it. And over and over, I would use the cleaning solution that I had because theirs is 20 to $25. I don't want to spend that much on a cleaning solution. Well, this all worked great until about three or four weeks ago. I went to wet back my house, and this no longer worked. I mean, this is a fancy machine. It's got an app. It even talks to you. It seems like it has a mind of its own. And so I did everything that I could troubleshooting it. I eventually emailed the customer service and went back and forth. And I ended up fessing up. I wanted to do the right thing because I knew that I had not put their solution in it. So necessarily, it was not their fault. So I told them that. I fessed up. They were kind enough to let me ship it back to them, put a new motor in it, and send it back. You see, my problem was is that I had a clean solution that created a lot of suds. Every time the vacuum would suction it back up, it made the vacuum work harder because there was too much suds. So they were kind enough to replace the motor, and I got one of their cleaning solution bottles, and now it works great. Why do I tell that story? All around us, in our culture, in our government, uh, in all the systems that we see around us, all of the, the media we see around us, people have taken out the manual. Uh, we don't we don't really want to see what God says, the creator, the manufacturer has to say. And we look at parts, maybe even as believers of his word, that, that maybe not are culturally palatable. Uh, some that might be labeled hate speech. And, and we pick and choose things and we take things out of the manual, but you can't do that. Because when you take one thing out of the manual, things don't function as they're intended to function. And so we look around at, at, at confusion around us, not just in, in sexual matters, but just all around us. But particularly, I want to speak a little bit about Pride Month, because this month uh, really has me asking the question of the message today, God, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what to do. It seems like our culture has gone completely crazy. And we could spend a whole sermon about this, and I, I want to choose my words very carefully, because these issues hit very close to home for many of us. We need, as believers to speak the truth of God's word. We don't need to be ashamed of the truth. We don't need to, to hide the truth or obscure it. And we need to speak that truth in love. Jesus loved people. And for us to say what the Bible says about sexuality and marriage, not just homosexuality and that issue, but pornography and, and adultery and fornication and, and all manner of things, for us to say that uh, and what the Bible says is not hate speech. The most loving thing that we can do for, for people in this world is to point them to Jesus. But they won't care about the truth that we have until they know how much we love them. So I would encourage you as we walk through this, this crazy culture and all these things going on, the confusion, go back to the Bible. Look in the beginning. In Genesis 1, the Bible says that God created them male and female in his own image. That means every person, even if they're confused about their gender, uh, either they're poor or rich, whatever situation in life they have, have been created in the image of God. And they have dignity and worth and value, and we need to love them just like Jesus would love them. But God created male and female. That was his original design. 
and he created marriage between one man and one woman. That was in Genesis, but if you read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, this is what Jesus said. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. This is what the manual says. He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I want you to know that the Bible is pretty clear, and Jesus was pretty clear about these issues. And we need to stand on God's word, and we need to love others the way that Jesus would love them. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their lives, that our country would turn back to God, and that we would not uh, be people of hate. Uh, to say these things, they'll say it's hate. It's not hate, it's love. Uh, somehow we have messed it up where we say to disagree with somebody, you must hate them. And that's just not true. Uh, we can hold on to the truth and still love at the same time. And so uh, there's much more we could say about that, but that's a question that I'm asking because I'm worried about my little ones. What kind of world are they going to grow up in? And there's so much confusion and chaos. And I, I must admit, I ask the question sometimes, what are we going to do? I don't know what to do. Well, back to our message in 2 Chronicles 20. There were uh, some very interesting situations that were encountered by God's people. The first thing I want you to see today is the problem of God's people, the problem that they faced. The first thing that they faced was a very frightening report in verse 1. The Bible says, after this... Now, if you go back and read verse nine, uh, chapter 19, you will see that King Jehoshaphat had done some really great things for God's people. He had turned God's people, the focus, back to God. And so there was a spiritual renewal in the southern kingdom. So there were good things going on. And the Bible says, after this, this is what happened. The Moabites and the Ammonites, together with some of the Meunites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat, the name means the Lord is judge. And he was king over God's people of Judah. And these three armies came together as a triple threat, a very frightening thing. And people came and told Jehoshaphat in verse 2, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea are coming from Edom and come to fight against you. And they are already in Engedi. If you look at a map, you can see that, that these three armies were closing in. They had bonded together to destroy God's people. And by the time word had gotten to King Jehoshaphat, there was no way that he could mobilize his armies in time to present a, a counterattack to the threat. In fact, the NLT says they were not just afraid, renders that word terrified. Uh, there was a very frightening report uh, that, that God's people were scared. A frightening report. I don't know, maybe in life you've had a, a frightening report. Everything seemed like it was going okay. Life was just going great. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, or you get a message. Uh, I remember the day that, that my wife and I, we got rid of all of our non-mortgage debt. We had worked so extremely hard. God had given us wonderful grace and blessing. It was a wonderful journey. It was a hard journey. But we reached a pinnacle in our marriage and in our family's life. But just a few hours after that, my wife went for a checkup to her doctor. She had been experiencing some pain in her abdomen, and it turns out they said, you need to get to the hospital right away. In fact, if you don't, you'll die. That very day, we went from something really great happening to something terrifying happening. I know you've experienced situations like that, and it causes you to cry out and say, God, what am I going to do? A frightening report. 
The second thing I want you to see today is a fearful resolve. A fearful resolve. Verse 3 says Jehoshaphat was afraid or terrified, and he resolved to seek the Lord. The great theologian John Wayne said this, Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyways. You can be afraid and courageous at the same time. You can be totally terrified for all the circumstances around you. You don't know what you're going to do and still have a resolve to turn your eyes to Jesus. That's what King Jehoshaphat did. Even though he was scared, he was the head honcho, but he was still terrified. He resolved that he would seek the Lord. My little son is taking swim lessons, and this week he had two lessons. And uh, after the first lesson, he was a little afraid because they put him on a paddleboard to kick across the pool. And uh, the morning before the lesson, I asked him this week, we said, are, are, are you okay? Are you ready for your lesson? He said, I'm scared. Well, he we said, you can be brave too. He said, oh yeah, you can be scared and brave at the same time. I think that's pretty wise. We can be scared and not know what to do and be brave and trust in God at the same time. And here's what Jehoshaphat did. He proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. All of the people of Judah, not just those in Jerusalem, but those spread out, he said, we are going to seek God, and not only are we going to pray, we are going to fast. A fast is when you give up something physical to gain something spiritual. It's something that unlocks just a deeper level of prayer and communion with God, where you say, God, I, I, before I need anything in this world, I want you, and I want to seek your face. That's what Jehoshaphat did. And then there was a family road trip. You see, from all Judah, they gathered to seek the Lord, some from 50 miles or more, probably on foot. And all these families came from all the cities of Judah, verse 4 tells us, to seek God. All the families went together on a road trip, not knowing what would happen, but knew, knowing that they needed each other and they needed God. The second thing I want you to see today is Jehoshaphat's prayer. When they had all gathered from their road trip, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, and here was the king, here was the leader. And this is what he prayed. Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. Jehoshaphat prayed, and he began his prayer not talking about the crazy chaos around him, but focusing his prayer on the strength of God. He looked up and he said, God, you are so powerful you reign supreme over all the nations. He talked first about God's character, who God is. He reminded himself, when we pray and tell God how awesome he is, we're not telling him something that he already knows, that doesn't know. We're telling him because he already knows, and we need to be reminded that we know who he is. And Joseph had prayed, and he said, God, you're powerful. And he talked about God's character, but then he talked about God's conduct. So not only did he look up, he looked to the past, to see what God had done for God's people, his faithfulness. And in verse 7, he said, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land? They have lived in the land, verse 8, and have built a sanctuary. And, and will we not stand before you and cry out to you because you have given us this land? So he turned his attention to the strength of God, but also the faithfulness of God, that God had promised something and that by his character, he was able to be strong enough to do what he promised he could do. And after telling God how strong he was, he, he looked around and said, God, we're weak. He turned his attention to the weakness of man in verse 10. He said, here are the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. 
And he said, you did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt. But Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. And then look in verse 12. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. The New King James says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Our streak begins at the moment where we say, I'm weak. At the very moment that we reject our pride and humble ourselves and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't face this situation. I can't love this person the way you would. God, I can't see a way out of this medical emergency or, or this financial crisis. It's at that very moment that we admit we are weak that God begins to show himself strong. Our friend Robert Smith says God is not initially interested in making us strong, but rather in rendering us weak so that we might know that he is strong. His strength is made perfect in weakness. And Jehoshaphat presented a leadership and military strategy that goes against everything that a normal leader would do. Can you imagine a president or a king getting up in front of the people and saying, I'm scared and I don't know what to do. That would not inspire a lot of confidence in your people. But that's what Joseph did. He said, I'm facing a situation so far out of my control. I have no power. I have no plan. God, all I have is you. And we look around in America and we say, God, we don't have a plan. We don't have any strength. God, all we have is you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And that is the moment that God began showing himself strong. So the weakness of man. I want you to see third this morning, the prophecy of Jehaziel. All the people had gathered. And I love this verse, verse 13. Don't miss it. All of Judah was standing before the Lord with their dependents. The New King James says little ones. That, that's better. They were standing with their little babies and their wives and their children. All the family had gathered together. I think about my little baby that I hold in my arms. And I think about standing in front of God's people facing a threat that, that would threaten to annihilate us. I, I imagine I would be scared as a father and as a husband. But they all gathered together in the middle of the congregation. And it was at this moment that the Bible says in verse 14 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon a Levite, a priest named Jehaziel. And this man said in verse 15, Listen carefully, all of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat. He stood up to the king and said, Listen, king, I got something for you to hear. And we need the word of God proclaimed by the Spirit of God in our culture today. We need people, not just preachers, but but." Ordinary men and women who will follow Jesus and stand up and say, this is what God says. And in his love, speak the truth. And, and, and he said, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number. But here's the change in perspective. For the battle is not yours, but God's. A lot of times we fight battles that aren't ours to fight. Have you ever walked into a, a conflict between two people and you inserted yourself right in the middle? And you think, oh boy, what am I going to do? I, I really stepped into it this time. I don't know, I have. And so we, we go into battles and we think that, that they are our battles 
and we fight these battles that aren't ours, and it leads us to be frustrated, and then we fight our spiritual battles with physical solutions. We think we can do something in our own strength, or, or we can make enough money, or, or we can persuade on our own power, and we think we can solve a problem on our own, and we're solving a problem that really wasn't ours to solve in the first place. Because God says the battle is not yours, but it's God's. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, people that believe different than we do on the other side of the political aisle have a different whole outlook and worldview and lifestyle. They are not our enemy. There is only one enemy, and it's the one that wants to steal and kill and destroy. And it's not primarily a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And spiritual battles can only be fought with spiritual solutions. We need God. There was a change in perspective. They looked from their own circumstance to see that the battle was indeed God's. Then there was a certain promise in verse 16. Tomorrow go down against them, and you will see them coming up the ascent of Z's. They were standing on top. They could see the people coming up. And you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel. You do not have to fight this battle. Uh, position yourselves and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or, or discouraged. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. There was a promise that, that not only was the battle God's, but that he was going to be with his people. That they did not go out into the battle alone. All they needed to do was position themselves and stand still and watch God work. Sometimes being patient and waiting for God to work is the hardest thing for us to do. We prefer our problems to be solved as quickly as possible, whether it be a prodigal child or a financial uh, difficulty. We, how am I going to make enough money to cover this bill? Or how am I going to find a job? I just lost mine. It's very hard for us to wait on God. It's very hard for us to stand still. But it's in the waiting that God shows us that he's with us. And not only is his presence there, he produces in us character that is pleasing to him. And he builds us in us faith and trust in him. And so Jehaziel said, don't be afraid because the Lord God is with you. I want to be a church where the Lord is. I want to be a person and in my family and in my home to say the presence of the Lord is there. Even in all the things going on around, and we don't know what tomorrow brings, all the, it's just a hurricane going on around us culturally. I want to say that for me and my family, the Lord is with us. Uh, we were traveling on Friday. Sorry for all the Baylor stories, but he's cute and, uh, for now. <laughs> Sometimes he's not, and uh, come over to my house and you'll see. But he's a blessing, and he's saying some of the most funny things. And, and you've had this with your children or grandchildren. Uh, but we were driving on Hillsboro going towards the church, Hillsboro Street, crossed the bridge and the train tracks, going past downtown, hit the crest of the bridge, and Baylor looked over from his front-facing car seat. He just got to turn it from the rear to the front. And he looked over and he saw the steeple of old Emmanuel. And we didn't point it out to him. And he looked and he said, Look, that's the church where Jesus is. Don't you want to be a church where Jesus is? And to know that no matter what happens in the world around us, he is with us. He's fighting for us. 
There's a certain promise that God would be with him. And then there was a sincere praise. Look in verse 18. Jehoshaphat knelt low with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. And then the Levites and the, from the sons of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting loudly. They had two physical postures that represented where they were spiritually. They knelt down, they humbled themselves, and then they stood up and praised loudly. Uh, Tony Evans says that praise is worship gone public. We can worship in our hearts and with our actions and our attitudes and in our quiet times, but when we praise, we must lift our voice and say, God, I publicly pro proclaim that you are worthy. The psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And they praised him, they humbled themselves, and they expressed confidence in God. The last thing I want you to see today is the power of God. They were persuaded in their minds. In the morning, verse 20, they got up early and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. This was 12 miles or so south of Jerusalem. They took a second road trip altogether. And as they were about to go out, Joseph stood up and said, Hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. They had a, a firm persuasion in their minds that God would do what he promised to do. Uh, we used to sing the old hymn, and it's based on scripture, when Paul said, I know who I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And we need to be persuaded that God will do what he said he will do. And that's what they had in their minds, a persuasion. Look in verse 22. The moment they began their shouts and praises. At the very moment that they began to bless God and proclaim who he was, the Lord set an ambush. They didn't have uh, spears in their hands. They had praise on their lips. And they obeyed God and said, I'm going to do what you tell me to do, even though it doesn't make sense militarily. Uh, God, I'm going to trust you. And at the moment they began obeying God, the Lord set an ambush. And if you read the verses, they, they pitted themselves against each other. He confused them. The enemies of Israel utterly annihilated each other. And in verse 24, when Judah came to the place, they looked for the large army, but then they saw only corpses lying on the ground. Nobody had escaped. Then they even gathered plunder and blessing from the enemies of God's people. God had made a way where there seemed to be no way. And they had praise on their lips. Last, they had peace in their hearts. All the men of Judah, they turned back and they went for a third road trip, 12 miles back to Jerusalem. And the Lord enabled them to rejoice on their enemies. And so they came into Jerusalem in the Lord's temple with harps and lyres and trumpets. And the terror of God was on all of the lands that they heard about the Lord, how he had fought against the enemies of Israel. And then Jehoshaphat's kingdom was quiet, for God gave him rest on every side. God had fought the battle that was his to fight. They had praised and worshipped. They had seen the presence and the power of God. And then God gave them peace in their kingdom. Our peace may not come on this earth. This culture may continue to reject us, throw us in jail, persecute us. It may get darker and darker. But one thing I know for sure is that God is in control and he is the prince of peace that can give you peace in your heart no matter what's going on around you. And one day we will be at perfect peace uh, when the Lion of Judah comes back, uh, not as the Savior as the first time, but as the conquering king. And he will set all things right, 
and truth will prevail, and his way will be established, and he will be powerful and reigning forever and ever. And that's the kingdom that I'm living for. No matter what happens around me, in my family's life, in my country's life, in the world, I'm going to trust Jesus and know that he's in control. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? The first thing you need to do, like Jehaziel, is, is look up. Don't look around to find solutions to your problems. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So you look up. You also trust. Trust that God will make a way when there seems to be no way. Whatever situation it is, know that he will bring glory to himself and he will give you the patience and peace that you need to endure the problem. Trust that, that he's got a plan and it's all going to work out okay in the end. On the other side, we know that all things will work together for good, even when they aren't, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So you look up and you trust and then you just obey. You just keep on keeping on. You do whatever God tells you to do. Even if it looks silly to the world like singing in front of an army, you obey God because that's building in you faith and showing the world your trust in him. What to do when you don't know what to do. As you bow your heads, the band's going to come up. But I would be curious today with nobody looking around, if you would say, Clark, I have a situation in my life, whether it be my family or, or my job, a friend of mine, something going on in, in my life, and I genuinely do not know what to do. Would you raise your hand just so I can pray for you today? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. In a moment, we're going to ask God to show himself strong in that situation, to meet you at your moment of need and show himself strong and able and give you peace, and that battle would be his and that you would get the victory. But perhaps today, you say, I'm facing this situation, but I don't know Jesus. Friend, you can't even face these types of things. You can't even get up and live life in our world today without knowing Jesus. I don't know how people do it. You need him in your life. You need his presence. You need his peace. But first of all, you need his forgiveness. The Bible says that Jesus was fully God and fully man. That he came to earth and lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could never live. And he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He never sinned. He never disobeyed God. And he died on a cross for the sin of the world, for your sin and my sin. He died in our place. The Bible says that after he had made payment for our sin on the cross by shedding his own blood, they buried him and he rose from the dead. And that's the good news of the gospel is that anyone who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus and accept him into their lives as their Lord and Savior can be born again. You can have a brand new life today because of what Jesus wants to do in your life right now. Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. We hope you'll tune back in next time to the Light for Living podcast.